0: Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Hey man, that was beautiful, ladies. Well, let's open our Bibles to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. I got some affirmation from a young voice out there. As you're finding John chapter 1, we're picking back up where we left off last week on verse 19. Uh, Just to piggyback on what Tyler said, we're starting the Galatians Sunday night study next Sunday night. And if you haven't been to any of those, we did Colossians last fall, took a little break over the holidays and starting Galatians next Sunday night. It's a very informal time where um, we're just opening up the Bible, I'm going verse by verse, and teaching from Galatians. It usually takes about an hour or so, lots of discussion. We pause along the way for questions. Um, As I mentioned last Sunday, I have an ulterior motive. Certainly, I want to teach the Bible to the people that God has given me to shepherd. But also, 15, 16 years ago when we started this church, Galatians was the first Bible book that I preached through verse by verse. I've been looking through my notes this past few weeks and I've got some tidying up to do, <laughs> so um, we're going we're gonna to get some things right that we messed up a decade and a half ago. But I hope you come to this, and uh, it would just be just, it's open to all, and it's a very informal time, and it's just a thrill to be able to gather together on the Lord's Day and sit with our Bibles open on our lap and think about how the inspired Word of God applies to us. That's just a joy, friends, and we're going to do that right now. So, uh, we're going to pick back up in verse 19. Now, we're making a transition. If you're visiting with us for the first time today, we are journeying through the gospel of John, or according to John, and this is the fourth gospel. It's a little bit different from Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, in the sense that those three gospels are often called the synoptic gospels, which is a word that means seeing together. So, there's a lot of Uh, continuity between the storyline in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And they sort of follow a more linear historical progression in the life of Jesus, whereas John is a little bit different. Uh, None of these Gospels contradict each other in any way, but they have different purposes. And one of the main purposes of John, unlike the other three Gospels, is that John is particularly Uh, uh, emphasizing the deity and who Christ is in his sovereignty as God in the flesh. Now, that's not to say that the first three gospels don't also emphasize that, but they they focus a little bit more on the incarnational life, the, the personhood of Jesus in his life. And again, that's not to say that John doesn't talk about that as well. But John is very concerned with showing his readers, not in a chronological sense, but in a sort of teaching sense, circling around some themes about who Jesus is and what he's come to do and that he is God in the flesh. So the first 18 verses of John, the introduction or the prologue, were a tightly packed theological heads up or introduction to the rest of the the book or the gospel. Verse 19 now begins more narrative form where John, again, is not necessarily going so much chronologically like the other gospels, but is now beginning narrative stories in the scenes and scenes about the life of Jesus. And here we have John the Baptist. So there's two different Johns here that we'll be referring to. One is John the Apostle, who's writing this gospel account. He was one of Jesus's closest ministry associates disciples, one of the 12. And John the Baptist, who is not the same John who's wrote this gospel, who is the forerunner, the one that has come to prepare the way for Jesus. And so we hear, we're picking up in verse 19, which we'll read in just a moment, is the testimony of this last Old Testament prophet, so to speak, John the Baptist, who's been raised up to prepare the way for Jesus. So with that, as a bit of an introduction before we start reading. I think the best way for us to tackle this text is just to read through kind of verse by verse, explaining along the way, verses 19 through 34, and then we'll end with a few reflections on how this passage applies to us. But first, let me pray and ask the Lord to to help us. Lord, um, I just thank you. What a privilege to open your word. Lord, I feel this um, every Sunday. But in particular, I just feel a inadequacy. I need your help to serve these people that I love. Lord, what we know not teach us, what we have not and truly need grant us, and what we are not make us. And do this all by the power of your spirit working through your word. And help me help these people that I love your glory, for our good, for the salvation of any that have come into this room and are, or that are listening online, that do not know you, and that you've called to yourself for their salvation. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 19, John, the gospel writer says, and this is the testimony of John, meaning John the Baptist, when the Jews sent priests from the sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? So there's this delegation, and I love the simplicity. Uh, I don't know if it happened exactly like this. This is the the account, just sort of in narrative form, but they just kind of come to John the Baptist. He's preaching, and the Jews, there's this phrase that's going to occur about 71 times in the Gospel of John, and it's not just referring to merely ethnic Israel, we, we would understand that's what the word Jew means, but it's really referring to the, the kind of establishment, uh, the, the religious epicenter of Israel, the Jews, the, the, the religious power brokers, and, and we'll see in John, as we journey through John, this consistent collision between Jesus and the Jews, and, and let's be careful. Let's be careful because now we can sort of read and we can look back through the portal of time with, a kind of, with a, kind of, uh, a, a kind of lack of grace. And we can say, oh, well, the Jews just didn't get it. But when you don't read yourself out of that, we often find ourselves sort of morphing into a kind of religious establishment that resists the teaching of Christ. And so, so the Jews, these religious people, people that were probably a lot like us are sending this delegation to ask John, "Who are you?" Verse 20, he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, "I am not the Christ." And so, it doesn't explicitly state the question, but his answer implies the question that they were asking him if he was the Christ. And so a couple of things that I want us to notice in verse 20 is and we're going to pick up on this towards the end is that John becomes a kind of prototype of gospel ministry. Essentially, John is, is saying, not me, but him. He, he's not wanting to draw people to himself. He, he is a prototypical picture of what it means to be a Christ-absorbed preacher of God's Word. He doesn't care about himself. John would probably not be the type of preacher in modern-day America that would have a big platform. If he had a Twitter profile, his picture, his profile picture, would not be him speaking to a crowd of hundreds of people. And if you ever see me with any social media picture of me sort of with some, like it looks like I'm speaking to the masses, then somebody come and slap me in the face. I'm sorry, I'm doing self-therapy right now. I know there are faithful preachers that have pictures of themselves preaching to people, but it just makes me pull my hair out. And John here is this picture of humility. Not me, people are coming, they're flocking to him. Not me, but Christ. And implicit in the question of the Jews, this religious delegation that is sent Implicit in this is their expectation of who Christ or the Messiah would be. It's important for us to understand the mindset of these first century Jews. It has been about 400 years since God spoke through a prophet, specifically Malachi at the end of the Old Testament. It's been about 400 years since God has spoken to his people through a prophet. And it's been silent since then. And since that time, Israel has found themselves being tossed to and fro from one conquering power to another. And now they find themselves under Roman captivity. And they are in the land, their land that God has given them, but they are under pagan Roman rule. And so they are looking for it. They're reading the Old Testament prophets of this promise of deliverance, and they are zeroed in on and mistakenly, narrowly interpreting the promises of Old Testament, Old Testament deliverance through a Messiah to mean a merely physical and political type of rescue. And so when they're asking John the Baptist, are you the Christ? Essentially, they're asking him, are you the one that is going to be the leader of the rebellion against Rome so that we can enjoy freedom here now? That's the mindset implicit in the question of this delegation sent by the Jews. They wanted a warrior king who would lead them to a national independence against Rome. But as we will see, Jesus came, yes, to be a warrior king, but a spiritual warrior king, who was less concerned about independence from some earthly power, but was more concerned with freedom from the power of sin and death. And that will be a constant misunderstanding. And aren't we chastened by that as well? we we see, friends the problem the problem is never primarily out there it's always in here and, and it just seems sometimes like jesus it seems like the new testament sometimes is is much less concerned about the physical kingdoms that suppress us as opposed to the spiritual kingdoms and our own sin that suppresses us. The Bible never works from the outside in in its conquering. It works from the inside out. That's the way the gospel works. And so he says, I am not the Christ. Verse 21, and they asked him, what then, are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So a little background on this, what's going on here? Well, the last verse of the Old Testament Malachi, the prophet, promises God speaks through Malachi, and he says that before the dread, the the great and awesome day of the Lord, this is the last verse that this is the last thing God has said to His people through a prophet four hundred years ago, and He says before the great and awesome day of the Lord, I'm going to send Elijah to come and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and he will turn the hearts of children to their fathers. In other words, he's going to bring about repentance and holiness in the nation of Israel. Okay, now what does Malachi mean when he says that I'm going to send, or when God is saying through Malachi, I'm going to send Elijah? Well, Elijah is a prophet that has already existed hundreds of years before in the nation of Israel. And so clearly he's speaking that there will be another Elijah type, another prophet who will have the type of ministry of Elijah who will come and he will prepare the hearts of the people of God before the great and awesome day of the Lord, which we now can take to mean the coming, the incarnation of Christ himself. But what does John say? And by the way, he also says, are you the prophet? I think that's a reference sort of generally to this promise through Moses and Deuteronomy Deuteronomy, that God is going to send a prophet. And and clearly, John fulfills sort of both of these roles. He is a kind of modern-day Elijah. He he, he is the fulfillment of his promise. But but what's striking here is they asked him, are you Elijah? Maybe he was thinking sort of literally. He says, I'm not. Are you the prophet? He says, no. No. He says, no. But later on in the Gospels, this is really, we have to think about this. Later on, Jesus says that John the Baptist is a kind of Elijah. He actually refers to him. He puts those two together, and in a sense, he does fulfill this role. So what are we to make of this? I just take it to mean that John, in all of his anointing, in all of his powerful preaching was so consumed with shining the light on Christ and away from himself that he's just, he doesn't even want to think about who he is. He's so self-effacing that he doesn't have time to think about his legacy. Now, isn't that wonderful? Sometimes, you know, you an athlete will... They'll ask some great athlete, you know, what do you think your legacy is? And I always appreciate the guys that are saying, I don't care about that. I just, I just want to win this championship. You know, who cares? That's for other people to decide. And I think that's a little bit of John's mindset here. John is so absorbed. He is so consumed with shining the light on Christ that he doesn't even really think to piece together that, hey, maybe I'm kind of the fulfillment of this prophecy. Don Carson, this wonderful New Testament uh, theologian, said in his commentary on John, I love this, he says about John's apparent lack of under self-understanding here, he says, apparently, and he's also saying that, well, Jesus does actually compare him to Elijah, and, and, and John the Baptist is saying, I don't, I'm not Elijah. He, Carson says, apparently, he, meaning John the Baptist, didn't detect as much significance in his ministry as Jesus did, <laughs> I love that, and isn't that the way we should all be? Whatever, just, this. and listen, this is a problem in America because we we are people that are so prone to making celebrities out of leaders. Not just politically, but spiritually. It's a problem, dear ones. It's a problem. Now I wanna serve you, I wanna serve you faithfully, I I understand the, the honor that should be given to leaders, but friends, I'm just another guy. The greatest leader, the greatest preacher, the greatest whatever in this country is just another guy. Biblical Christianity is centered on Christ, not on man. And John is such a wonderful picture of this. Such a wonderful picture of this. Let's keep going. Verse 22 So they said to him, well, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? So clearly there's this official delegation that sent these these Levites and priests to come back and give them an answer. And he said, verse 23, and again we see John's humility even in his answer. He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. So here he does connect his ministry with an Old Testament prophecy. But notice it's it's from Isaiah 40, verse 3. It's really a direct quote that, that God will send. This is God speaking to the nation of Israel about how he will send a voice crying out in the wilderness. And John was this rough man. I mean, he wore you know a coat of camel's hair and he ate locusts and honey. He was a rough dude. He'd be he'd, he, he he was he was an outdoorsman. And here he is saying that I, 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 I'm, I'm that voice that Isaiah was speaking of, that, that, that he, God prophesied through Isaiah that on, in these days he would raise up this one, make straight the way of the Lord, preparing the way for the Messiah that would come. But notice even in this, the, the, the Old Testament prophecy that John does self-identify himself with just refers to himself impersonally as a voice. It's just a voice. I, it's not about me. It's not about the voice. It's about the message that the voice is pointing to. Again, we see John's utter humility. Verse 24 now they had been sent from the Pharisees. Now, this, this, this particular group of people, the Pharisees, is going to come up again and again throughout John's gospel. And who were the Pharisees? Well, they were particularly earnest and intentional. Group of religious leaders in Israel that were very concerned about keeping the whole law of God, and it's easy for us to sort of look down the end of our nose again at the Pharisees and just see them as these religious snobs who just rejected Jesus. But that's that's an unfair characterization. It's that's a that's a very that's a very sort of. Um, uh, a narrow view of the Pharisees. Yes, they got it wrong, but friends, they were people that cared deeply about honoring God in many ways. And they cared deeply about obeying the Lord. Yes, it sort of morphed into, over time, it became a kind of, a kind of work, a kind of legalism. But friends, let's not write ourselves out of the text. We, we are much more like the Pharisees often than we think. And so when we go through John's gospel and we see the Pharisees, not, let's not just sort of stand over on the other side of the room and say, gosh, how could the Pharisees have missed it? Friends, we, we need to see ourselves as, as, as also having this type of narrow-mindedness and self-centeredness and, and almost a kind of works-based salvation that the Pharisees had and how we also get tangled up in that same religious mindset. Verse 25, and they asked him, then, so this is them asking John the Baptist. Now, this is really interesting. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? Now, this is interesting because baptism, this is the first time that baptism is really mentioned in the New Testament, other than obviously in the Synoptic Gospels about the baptism of Jesus, but this is the, the John the Baptist doing baptizing is the first time that we see baptism in the Bible. What's going on? We we don't actually see the institution of what we know now of baptism as an ordinance, as a command of new life in Christ until the time of the apostles, until Paul teaching on it in Romans chapter 6 and Colossians chapter 2 as being a sign of the new covenant, of new birth in Christ. So what's going on here? Well, there are evidences that baptism, immersion in water, was something that was happening in Israel during this time, and it was a ritual or rite that they would bring Gentiles into Israel or into fellowship with Israel by baptizing. Now, we know from the Old Testament law that they were to be circumcised and they were to follow God's, uh, all of God's Mosaic law, but also part of that was this, there was this practice of baptizing, dipping people in water, immersing them in water as a kind of picture of renewal for people, Gentiles, that would be becoming part of or having fellowship with the nation of Israel. Although it's not really recorded in the Bible, we see this in historical accounts. But here's what's going on in this instance, and this is what's kind of wrestling the feathers of the Jewish leaders, is that John isn't baptizing Gentiles necessarily in this moment, but he's baptizing Jews. And so they're they're kind of like flummoxed, like, wait a minute, This this, this thing that you're doing, we understand it's a kind of cultural practice to symbolize coming into our community, but why do we need to be baptized? Why why do the Jews need to be baptized? And so they were threatened by it, and and essentially they're asking them, what authority do you have to do this thing? So this this controversy surrounds John's work. In In verse 26, John answered them, and he's pointing them again beyond himself. I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. Again, just note the humility of John. He, he basically is saying that, that I am, in this, this phrase that it's not about me, it's about Jesus, and I'm so unworthy I can't even undo his sandals would, would be a, a statement of the lowest form of humility. So like when a Jewish leader would have a, 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 a disciple, that disciple uh, would serve them in many ways, take care of kind of their daily needs, make them food, clean their house, all that kind of stuff, um, as, as well as being their kind of uh, mentoree. I think we should institute some similar program with the associate pastors here, like hey, mow my lawn, I don't know, whatever. Um, but, <laughs> but <laughs> I'm, sorry, I'm, gonna hear, I'm gonna hear about that at staff meeting. Um, <laughs> But even the servants, it was seen as the the, the act of removing the sandals of the teacher was even below them. And it was something that a a slave would do. And so John is saying, I'm not only not worthy to be his servant, I'm, I'm not worthy to be his slave. I'm even below that. I'm not even worthy to do the lowest task that one human can do for another. That's how John thought of himself. And look at the power that this man ministered in. There's this utter humility in John. And then he goes on to verse 23. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. Now we may say, well, that's just a kind of Historical note, why is this important? Well, this is just a clue to us that these were real events that happened in a real place. And so when you see verses like that, they may, they may not make their way into your memory verse box, but they have it a very important place in the, in the, the canon of Scripture. They, they become statements about the authenticity and the historicity, the realness of the Bible. These are not just stories that religious writers were inspired to write as a kind of metaphorical teaching. This is history that happened. Verse 29, the next day he saw Jesus. Oh, verse 29, come on. Now this, this is something you want to, a verse you want to underline, highlight, memorize. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Friends, there there is so much richness embedded in John's identification of who Jesus is. He is the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. The lamb, here we see just in one verse, this tying together of the Old Testament witness with the New Testament revelation of who Jesus is. It ties the Bible together for us. The Old Testament is rich with this picture of the lamb being a physical lamb, being the sacrifice for God's people. Think about Genesis chapter 22 and verse eight. And you know the scene in Genesis chapter 22 where Abraham has been promised this child this promised child that will come and he comes finally Isaac comes and he's given through Sarah, his old wife. And Abraham was old. How can this elderly couple have this child of promise only by God who brings life to a barren womb? And this child of promise is now a young boy. And God tells Abraham, go to the mountain and sacrifice this boy for me. And Abraham, in obedience, takes his young boy, probably a young teenager at the time, He saddles up the donkey. He's got the wood for the sacrifice and all the things that he needs. And they're going up the hill. And and little Isaac says, but but dad, where's the the animal? Where's the lamb? And in Genesis chapter 22, verse 8, Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them together. What's this a picture of? And God, in fact, does that very thing. He provides a ram. Caught in the thicket to be the sacrifice. What is this, friends? It's not just a story of some miraculous provision of the, of the continuation of God's promise through a family. It is an Old Testament shadow that's meant to lift our eyes to point to the true lamb that will come and be our provision that God provides. Think about Exodus, friends. Think about, and I know you just read this this last week or two in your Bible reading plan, hopefully, right? Exodus. Exodus. Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12. Come on. you got to know this chapter. So what's happening in, in God's people, okay, Genesis, in God's people find themselves in captivity in Egypt through their folly. And God rescues them through the ministry of Joseph. And now they find themselves as slaves under the hand of the despot Pharaoh. And God raises up Moses and he says, go and command Pharaoh to let my people go. But I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart so that he won't obey you. There's a lot going on there. I don't have the time to get into it. I wish I could. We'll do it some other time. And so he says to Moses, go. Command him to let my people go. Moses goes. Pharaoh hardens his heart. God sends plague after plague after plague. Pharaoh says, okay, I'll do it. But then right at the end, he changes his mind. And God's people are still in captivity. And in Exodus chapter 12, we see the straw that will break Pharaoh's back with the Passover lamb. Listen, as I read from Exodus chapter 12, and as we read this, think about John's words in John 1 about the lamb. He's calling Jesus the lamb that will take away the sin of the world. And go now to Exodus 12. Listen, as the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, they're on the brink of being freed from Egyptian captivity. This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, so you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb, verse 5, shall be without blemish. Friends, when you read that, you should think about Jesus in Hebrews where it says that he is without sin, acquainted with us in every way, but yet without sin. Peter calls him the lamb without spot or blemish. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then, verse 7, they shall take some of the blood and put it on the doorposts and on and the lintel of the houses in which they eat. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with legs and its inner parts. And you shall not let And on all the gods, lowercase g, meaning false gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. Verse 13, the blood, this lamb without a blemish, shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Friends, do you see the rich the rich picture in the Old Testament? The shadow that becomes the reality in Christ. He's the lamb. And notice, not only is he the lamb whose blood was spilled to spare us from the wrath of God, but his flesh is the flesh that we eat metaphorically. We feed on Christ. He's all we need. He sustains us and he saves us. And when the angel of God's judgment passes over the doorsteps of our hearts when the blood when our trust in Christ the lamb on the cross sacrificed for us he passes over us and no judgment shall befall us because we are in him we are one of his people and he takes away the sin of his people Isaiah, we gotta do one more. Come on. I want you to see this. Isaiah, you gotta see this. Isaiah 53. This is this beautiful passage. You gotta know Isaiah 53. Come on now. Come on. Here's your homework Exodus chapter 12 and Isaiah 53. You gotta get into these chapters, friends. Come on now. Don't just let it be something the preacher occasionally reads, let it be something you know. Isaiah 53. Hundreds of years before Jesus, this prophecy of the Messiah, the suffering servant that will come and finally free his people, and let's hear the picture that Isaiah paints of this one who will come, who has believed. Verse 1, what he has heard from us. And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. I think that's speaking metaphorically that Jesus was just an average guy. He did not look like one of the Bee Gees, like we paint him in all of our stupid pictures. I mean, I don't have time. Let's keep going. (laughs) He was despised and rejected by men. Now, this is, this is prophetically speaking hundreds of years before Jesus was actually born as a man. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Here it is like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that goes before its shears is silent. So he opens not his mouth. Skip down to verse 10. Yet. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. A guilt offering. What's that a picture of? It's a picture of the sacrifices of the law in Leviticus that called for a lamb to be offered for the guilt of the people on the day of atonement. Makes offering for their guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Oh, friends, the Lamb... When John says in verse 29, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, he's pointing back to all of this prophecy that is pointing forward to Jesus. And not only is he looking back to the Old Testament, he's looking forward to the last book of the Bible, Revelation 5 verse 12, where John says, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing blessing jesus is the lamb of god who doesn't just make taking away of sin possible if you will do your best no friends that's not the gospel jesus is the lamb who actually takes away the sin of people who can't take their own sin away that's the good news of the gospel not that you have to do this, but this has been done for you. Oh, praise God. Friends, we are not saved by our good works. We are not saved by our religious duties. We are not saved by our prayers. We are not saved by anything we do. We are saved by grace through faith in the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. And then when God gives us that new heart so that we can trust in Christ, we now are freed to actually do those things to honor him. Verse 30, this is he of whom I said... We're back in John now. Let me, get you, let, me let you get your bearings while I get mine. <laughs> back in verse 30 of John 1, this is he of whom I said after me... So this is John the Baptist speaking about Jesus... After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. So John is is telling us that the purpose of his baptism, which has no biblical precedent up to this point, and isn't the same as the baptism that we see later in the New Testament, which is upon belief in Jesus for entrance into the New Covenant, He's just saying that whatever's going on with his baptism, it's preparatory to prepare. It's part of God's work in his life to prepare the way for the Messiah. And John bore witness I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Oh, gosh. We could do we could do a whole series of messages just on the Trinity that we see pictured in verses 32 and 33. We see see God sending the Son, and we see the Spirit descending on the Son, empowering, and we see Jesus baptizing in the Spirit, and I take that to mean new birth. When Jesus baptizes you in the Spirit, and we'll get to this later when we get into John. It doesn't mean some second experience after salvation. Baptism in the Spirit in the New Testament primarily refers to the new birth. So Jesus has come to baptize you to make you go down into the waters of death in him on the cross and come up alive. Jesus, essentially, when it says that Jesus comes to baptize in the Spirit, that Jesus comes to take you from spiritual death to spiritual life. And the means by which he accomplishes that is the Spirit that awakens our dead heart, gives us ears to hear, a heart to believe, so that we can believe in Jesus. In verse 34... And I have seen him and borne witness that this is the Son of God. And this is a clear reference when it says the Son of God. And when you see the Son of God, all throughout the New Testament, it's not just talking about the biological Son of God. It is is a, a, a title of divinity. It is speaking of the lordship, the godness of Jesus. Essentially, we need God in the flesh, to save us from God. And that's what Jesus has come to do. All right, let me hurry on. I'm out of time, but let 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 me just roll through these reflections from John's witness of Jesus. Just a few reflections from John's witness, John the Baptist's witness of Jesus. One, all history unfolds according to God's plan. When you see Old Testament verses come to life in the New Testament... Let that be more, and it is this, it's this, so I don't mean to minimize this in any way. Let it be more than just an apologetic point of defense of the authenticity of Scripture. Okay, it's that. We see all these, some 300-something prophecies in the Old Testament that are fulfilled specifically in the life of Jesus. And maybe if you're Talking to a friend who doesn't believe in the veracity of the Bible, you might point to that and say, how how could this? I I think that's true. But friends, I think it gives us an even deeper, more profound picture of the utter authority of God. Friends, everything, everything is unfolding according to his plan. It's it's almost, you read the Bible, it's almost as if God has this whole thing rigged. (laughs) Because he does. Which should give me great comfort because life is chaotic. My life's chaotic. I'm anxious. I wring my hands. You don't know what tomorrow brings. There are anxious people that are in this room right now. And we need to fasten ourselves to the truth, the sycamore of the sovereignty of God in the unfolding plan of history. You can hang on to that, friends. And that doesn't mean that tomorrow is going to be lollipops and puppy dogs. It may mean that you get a diagnosis from the doctor and you go to be with Jesus before this year is out. But if that's what happens to you, it is God's good plan for you. And all that, it's easy to preach. It's hard to live. Two, the Christian life is one of humility, pointing to Christ not self. Let's just be struck by the humility of John. Oh, that we would be humble. And, and, you know, most of us may not be vocational ministers. Most of us may not have a... In fact, none of us will have a ministry on the scale of John the Baptist. So we might be tempted to say, well, this is just a great picture of uh, the humility of a preacher. But friends, don't let it stop there. Like, we... We are arrogant people. We want everything to ultimately center on us by default. And John is such a counter picture of that. He is so absorbed in living for Christ that he, it's like he's, 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 he's ignorant to the obvious implications of his ministry because he's so self-absorbed with Christ. What does that look like for you? What does humility look like for you? Maybe, maybe you're a young guy that, you know, you've got a couple theology books and you've figured some stuff out and you're like on a war path to let everybody know how much you know. Simmer down, champ, simmer down, okay? Or, or maybe, maybe you're older and you're just frustrated with these millennials who can't even tuck in their shirts. Ah. Okay, a little humility. The church, the church should be the humblest place on earth because we're all so acquainted with our weakness in God's glory. Three, our triune God is relational. And has made us to be as well. I don't have time to get into this. We'll get into it later. But we just see this beautiful, these glimpses of the Trinity. God is a fellowship in and of himself. He's three in one. God, in his essence, is a community. And when we become part of his family, we become part of the fellowship of God. And we become part of the family of God. And we need one another. I don't have time to to develop that further, but we'll get into it later. Four, the gospel is the power of God for salvation. The gospel, the good news, the announcement, and that's what the gospel is. This word gospel sometimes can be overused. Gospel this, gospel that, gospel centered, gospel living, living out the... The gospel at first is an announcement. It is news. It's a declaration. It's an old Greek word that would be used for... A Uh, like a troubadour that would announce the victory of a conquering king. So if one king would go and he would win a war when he was coming back to his kingdom, the troubadour would announce, he would display, he would shout out, the king has won, the king has won. That's what this word gospel means. It's an announcement. It's a headline. It's a proclamation. This has happened. It's indicative. It's done. The king has won. But notice this, and you're going to see this, we're going to see this all throughout the book of John, is that the gospel is in itself the very facts, the very news, the very proclamation. It is the thing that creates the very thing it commands. Behold the lamb, not who makes it possible. Behold the lamb who actually takes away the sin of the world. The world, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord, Jew or Greek, Jew or Gentile, rich or poor, Smart or not so smart, whosoever shall call, nobody is outside of his reach. He is able to save to the uttermost. Nobody's unsavable. And the power to make it come to pass doesn't exist in us. It's in God. And his mercy is rich and mighty to save. Behold. So friends, just one implication of this before we hurry on and finish and land this plane, because i got to land it, is that this should give you great hope for your friends that don't know the Lord. The gospel doesn't need agreement. It doesn't need a kernel of faith in a person. Dead people who are spiritually dead, which is all of us before Jesus makes us new, cannot do anything. You put... Medicine next to a corpse in a hospital and that corpse cannot, will not, will never reach for the medicine. That's what religion says. It says to a corpse, reach for the medicine. Grab it, grab it, do this. But the corpse cannot do it. That's the spiritual state of every human being before Jesus wakens their soul. But the gospel says, corpse Live the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. And when God saves a person, that glorious, life giving power comes. It hits a heart. It causes it to be made alive, as Ephesians 2 says, and it creates the life. It gives the faith that it commands. So don't ever say that somebody's beyond hope, don't ever say that somebody's unsavable. And don't ever act like you have to be the best witnesser or evangelist in the world to be the one who brings. The power of God is the gospel and the salvation. Keep putting Jesus and the news that God is holy and that we are sinners and that Jesus bore our wrath and that the blood cancels all of our sins and that he makes us alive. Keep putting it before your unsaved child, your parent, your friend, and God will do what God will do with that news. Now, finally, I got to do this. Fifth, I love this. The life of faith can be full of doubt. Where do I get this from? Well, man, John the Baptist is he's a stud. All right, he's he's a he's what we would call a baller. Right? This dude's got game. And in John chapter 1, he comes out swinging, man. This cat's preaching. He don't care what people think. His wardrobe is out there. He's dipping bugs in honey. I mean, Talk about some dude who's strong. But later on in the Gospels, John gets thrown into prison for preaching righteousness to Herod for his immorality with his brother's wife. And John is in prison, and he's about to get his head chopped off for his preaching of righteousness. And John the Baptist, powerful, anointed, voice of one crying in the wilderness, John the Baptist says this in Matthew 11, verses 1 through 3. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John, speaking of John the Baptist, listen to this, heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, are you the one who is to come? (laughs) Or shall we look for another? I'm just captivated by that. John the Baptist doubted. At the end of his life, when he's about ready to be martyred for Jesus, John the Baptist is like, "Uh, uh, John the Baptist. John the Baptist. Behold, the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. Some months later, are, are you the one Come on, friends. Are you racked with doubt? Do you beat yourself up for your anxiety? Oh, join the merry band of God's people. And the procession is headed by Johnny B. John the Baptist. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Life gets hard. Are you, are you the one? Oh. We should be merciful to each other, shouldn't we? Life can be full of doubt. But praise God. He will lose none of his people. All of his children, even though they limp into glory, will make it all the way home. And here's the good news. We are saved by the object of our faith, not the strength of our faith. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this text. Encourage your people. Draw unbelievers to yourself and be glorified, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.